Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing the 2020 Norwegian film Cadaver. Before we get into all that good stuff, what's going on? Well Matt, you've been up to things I hear. Been playing games? Yeah, I'm actually getting my first chance to play a Call of Cthulhu, or in this case a Pulp Cthulhu campaign in years. Over with our good friends at Into the Darkness, Zane Fleming's been running us through Cold Fire Within. I'm having a laugh with that, that is such a great campaign. Oh, marvellous. And people can find that on YouTube? Yes, yeah, we're releasing the episodes weekly. Occasionally we might have a break when not all of us can make it, or Zane's busy and that kind of thing. On the whole, we're putting it out weekly. We just recorded our fifth episode last night at the time of recording now. Yeah, we've had some really... Really weird, pulpy goodness in that campaign so far. Very different from Two-Edged Serpent, because I'm pretty certain we didn't envision running around the rings of Saturn in our game. Oh, okay. I was going to ask where it sits on the pulp scale, like from 1 to 10. Sounds like 11. (laughs) It's somewhere close to 11, and it hits the ground running, because that was only our fourth session, and we were, uh, yeah, we were in space. Nice. Do you think that's actually in the campaign, or is this just down to something you did yourself, Matt? Zane actually held up the image that's accompanied in the book about a chase sequence going round Saturn. Are you sure you didn't fall asleep while playing and just dream it? Well, maybe character might have done, but... <laughs> Matt is so immersive, he plays through his character's dreams. Mm. <laughs> Let's move on to our main topic, Cadaver. Well, this is the first feature film from a new director. He's quite a young man, apparently, I think... He was 23 when he made this. A man whose name I'm going to mangle probably, but uh, Jaran Terdal, who's from Norway. And it was released last year on Netflix. And I guess we're going to talk about it. As it started, I wasn't sure, I hadn't actually looked up anything about it. So I didn't realise it was Norwegian necessarily. And there's quite a bit of intro before you actually get any dialogue. So I'm thinking... Is this a foreign language film? Has this got subtitles? Do I need to change the preferences? And then you get a little bit of a snatch of dialogue. And I'm like, actually, was that in English or was it not? Because it was like (laughs) such a little bit and it used the girl's name, Alice. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Now, clearly, this is not English language. And I changed it to the dubbed version because I was lazy. But just a few seconds in, you get some headlines on newspapers and so on. And they're in Norwegian. And I thought, well, I kind of get a feel for what they're saying, but I don't really understand the details. I might be missing something here. And maybe if I put the subtitles on, I'll get insight into what they say. So sure enough, subtitle it and it tells me what they're saying. So I leave the subtitles on and the dubs on. And they really don't match up. (laughs) Well, that's actually fairly common. If you watch pretty well any foreign language film that's got subtitles and dubs, yeah, they seem to be written by different people or scripted by different people. And sometimes they differ wildly. There was, oh gosh, some Hong Kong action film I remember watching years ago, and I can't remember what it was. But I can't remember why, but I ended up doing something very similar and putting on both the dubs and the subtitles. Mm. And... It was like two different films. I mean, it wasn't just like slight differences in the dialogue. At times, the dialogue had been completely rewritten to the extent where it was almost telling different stories. Right. I mean, it wasn't that extreme in this. 
you could tell that this is a difference in translation and sometimes they'll be making a suggestion but in the subtitle it will be you know emphatic and those differences sometimes were quite marked but it's, it's pretty obvious that they do the film and then they send it out to somebody to do the dubbing and somebody else to do the yeah. subtitles and the two don't communicate with each other which is which is fine well i think that's fairly common yeah well, i watched through this twice because i had to put together a synopsis and the second time i did it with the dubbing so that i could transcribe bits of it but also had the subtitles on just so i could check bits of dialogue and yeah yeah sure. it's, it wasn't hugely different like you say, it was it was differences in emphasis. My impression was that the dubbed version was a bit more casual and colloquial, and the subtitled version was done by someone who perhaps spoke slightly more formal English. Hmm. I only watched the dubbed version myself. I thought, there's got to be a dub to this because Matt has recommended it. It cannot no. be subtitled all the way through. <laughs> there must be a dub version, and sure enough, there was. Anyway, let's move on to our discussion of the story. And we open with children running through a large, gloomy room filled with huge piles of clothing. Yeah, this is kind of a, a weird image. The piles are like about 12 feet high. They're really big. Mm. One girl picks up a shirt that has a fresh blood stain on it. Now, this image, this... I think, particularly because some of the things that we see later on, very clearly evokes a number of the pictures that were taken in the Nazi death camps. There were these huge piles of personal effects of shoes, of glasses, of clothing, of gold teeth. I don't know. I, that really rubbed me up the wrong way, actually, in this, because of the kind of film this is. That evoking the Holocaust in the midst of a fairly mediocre science fiction film, I don't know, it just seemed cheap. Hmm. I didn't get that. In retrospect, it does seem quite obvious, but at the time I didn't get the reference. If anything, I thought it was more of a kind of mild spoiler for what's coming up. Mm. When you put that and the title together, you think, hmm, okay, this maybe gives you some uh, hints that you can read between the lines about what's coming up. And what we learn is Norway has suffered a nuclear catastrophe, a possible act of war. It was severe enough to have knocked down large buildings without actually killing everybody. Yeah, it's very much a post-apocalyptic world that we see, but people are still living in this urban landscape. There are references in some of the headlines. I think it does devolve into nuclear war because that nuclear accident does imply that was it an act of terrorism or was it an accident? And then we're introduced to Leonora, who's known to her family as Leo, who lives in a rundown flat with her husband Jacob and their daughter Alice. One day they come home and find the woman next door in the process of hanging herself, or having just hanged herself, they hear it. But hey, Alice gets a free doll out of it, so it's all okay. It's a cute little teddy bear too, little rabbit. Leo has a nightmare about Alice disappearing, which does nothing to make her cautious throughout the rest of the film. As Leo helps Alice through her own nightmares, she talks of her days performing Shakespeare on the stage. Yep, there's some foreshadowing right there including the reference with the poster that she played, uh, potentially maybe a kind of gender-swapped Macbeth, or that she was Lady Macbeth, potentially, because uh, out, out that damn spot seems to be a recurring thing, even if it does turn out to be corn syrup. The family are starving. Happily, Leo hears a travelling barker outside advertising a play, which includes a meal. Ah, it's basically like the scene from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, is it? Where the child catcher turns up. Yes, yes it is. Our dear old child catcher outside, who doesn't look at all creepy and enhanced by the slightly out-of-sync dubbing, just makes him really, really bloody creepy. 
is saying, yeah, you can uh, buy tickets, come for a meal and a show, it's all good. Of course, Leo's first reaction is, what do we pay? He just leans in creepily and just says, what can you afford? What can you give? And cut back to the voice of reason inside the house and the husband's going, this don't sound great at all. This doesn't add up. Who the hell gives a meal and a show in the apocalypse? What the hell? This this ain't right. Voice of reason. Yeah, And of course, then Leo just says, well, what do we have to lose? Your life, for one thing, you silly... (laughs) That night... The group of them walk up to this grand but rather run-down-looking hotel on the hill. The bark is outside, ushering people in, and seems a bit startled to see Alice there and says that the show is for adults only. But then Matthias, who's in charge of the whole thing, is the owner of the hotel and is running the play, comes over and overrules him, saying that children see worse every day these days. There are bodies lying in the streets after all, so yeah, he's got a point. Yeah, so they're ushered in and there's about, I don't know, 10 tables, big round tables, and they, they're invited to sit down. Waiters come around with plates of food with silver covers on them, which they take off, and there's lovely plates of food, and they eat those up. Yum, yum, yum. Not just plates of food, plates of meat. There are no side dishes or anything like that, it's just meat. Mmm, yum, yum. Matthias comes on stage and gives a pretentious speech about the nature of humanity. It is pretty pretentious. (laughs) That's what you need. Matthias explains that the performance will not take place on stage, that everything that happens from now on will be part of the show, and that you can explore the whole hotel as part of the play itself, following characters as they go from room to room, following whoever they find the most interesting. The audience members are given golden masks and told that they can identify actors because they don't wear a mask. And so, almost immediately, some actors, some of whom are embedded with the audience, launch straight into some apparently completely disconnected scenes, and some of them wander off, and audience members follow them. Our family takes an interest in a woman called Raquel, and goes off to try to find her in the hotel. This takes them through the kitchens, where they see a variety of fresh produce lying around. The audience wander from room to room. Our protagonists find Matthias performing a skit with Raquel about the breakdown of his marriage. Another actor becomes uncomfortable when he sees Alice. Around this time, the family give up wearing masks because they're actors and actors do not like wearing masks in films. (laughs) Yeah. You knew they weren't going to wear their masks. Absolutely. Though, I mean, it does become something of a plot point. Oh, yeah, for sure. Strange sounds come from some of the rooms, which the family ascribe to the play. Their unease grows when they realise that they can't see other audience members. Alice keeps wandering off because, boy, that is something that kid does, no matter how many times you tell her. No, don't go off on your own. Oh, she's gone again. While Jacob is cross with her, Leo encourages her to explore the creepy hotel because that's a sensible thing to do. (laughs) Yes, and after all the foreshadowing of her dreams earlier and her panic over losing her daughter and so on, it's, oh yeah, okay, we're in a strange place and weird stuff's happening. You go off and you do you, Alice. (laughs) You do you. There's a weird kind of juxtaposition here that at first is quite jarring, that you've got this wonderfully opulent interior of the hotel all the way up to the fourth floor, and then you go up to the fifth floor and it's basically still suffering from fire damage. The place hasn't been renovated at all. Which kind of has a little bit of a tie into the backstory later when you see certain things. Mm. Such as there is a backstory, yes. The very minimal one, yeah. Mm. So Alice, unsurprisingly, disappears. 
Her parents panic a bit and start running around searching for her, but only hear her screaming from somewhere. While they're wandering around looking, they encounter Catherine, who was the mother of the family they shared their table with during the meal. She too apparently has lost her daughter, Suzanne, as well as her husband, Lars. Catherine goes into another room and, following a clunking sound, she disappears. Leo is startled when a painting of a sheep's head blinks. Of course, Jacob finds nothing wrong with the picture. It's just a painting. This is a classic trope that they keep going back to in this, that you have one character who sees something weird, and of course, no one else actually can find any evidence of this. I will have quite a lot to say about this, because mostly this film just bored the fuck out of me, but this was one thing that actually did irritate me, which is just the way that they cheat, the way the filmmakers cheat in this film. I'll go into that a bit more later. The parents encounter an actor who slits his own throat for no apparent reason. Another actor walks past, remonstrating him for messing around, basically saying, quit with the acting and get to the ballroom. Mistaking the maskless parents for actors, she tells them to go to the ballroom as well. At this point, then, Leo and Jacob wander into the room that we saw in the opening scene with the piles of clothes lying around. They hear some sobbing coming from there and they find Lars sitting on the ground crying. They also find Alice's dress and her doll there and the doll is spattered with blood. And then, you know, as, as you do, Jacob decides that he's going to taste the blood on the doll. I mean, he has found this blood bag lying around, which has obviously put the idea in his head that he has to taste the blood on the doll, because I don't know. Also, if it was fake blood, why are they carrying in an actual blood bag? I know. Well, it looks like the kind of thing you'd pick up at Hot Topic. It looks like something like a Halloween decoration. Yeah. It blatantly wasn't right. a real blood bag. So when he tastes the blood, he discovers that it's just corn syrup, and surely this means everything that's going on is just part of the play. So Jacob and Leo head to the ballroom. On the way, Leo watches duplicates of Alice's dress dropping down the stairwell in slow motion like rose petals. Why is the scene in here? Why? <laughs> I quite like that. It's quite a good image. There is a mote of music playing. There are these dresses falling down. The director at some point has clearly decided that he is making an art house film and he is going to put scenes like this in here. Whether or not they fit the tone of the film or whether or not they actually mean anything or whether they convey any genuine emotion. I mean, he doesn't bother actually fleshing out the characters and turning them into people or giving them any character traits beyond just making them ciphers. But he gives us scenes like this because he wants to show us he's an artist, damn it. I think he's in... Uh the Shining once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen a lot of far better films and decided to emulate them. I mean, at some point, I think he decided that he was making The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover and didn't realise that Peter Greedaway had a script. Or alternatively, that maybe he saw Delicatessen and thought, what if we made a film like this, but just how about to differentiate it? How about if we just make it shit? They were all a bit dull. I can make a dull film too. If you hadn't a guest audience, Scott liked this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was all just in the mother's head, personally, but fair enough. Yes, I mean, of course it is, but why is that scene in there? No, seriously, Matt, what purpose does that scene serve? Because it looks fun. It, look, it was a nice image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is the director basically wanking on screen for the audience. Anyway. Now you've got that image out of your head. Yeah. The parents and Lars watch from the balcony as Matthias tells his actors they're a family. Oh. 
They see sinister men in white uniforms pushing wheelbarrows, gathering abandoned belongings. Well, at least the guys in white have got their PPE. Yeah, it was quite familiar, I thought. <laughs> a lot of the things in this film. Now when I see people on TV shows or horror films and so on, they've got face masks on. I'm like, yeah, that's normal. <laughs> it doesn't like put up a red flag like it should do. This is the world we live in. And so Leo follows one of these sinister men with the wheelbarrows and sees him walk into a hidden door behind a picture. And of course, when Jacob catches up, he can't find any trace of the hidden door. He and Lars take the picture off the wall and there's no trace of an outline or a secret door or anything like that. However, they do eventually manage to wander into a room where the audience's clothes are being burnt in ovens. And again, I mean, this harks back to some of the Holocaust imagery I was talking about before, Mm. in that we do have sort of this mass disposal of these belongings in industrial-looking ovens. I took more of a practical approach to it, thinking, well, they've got to have the boiler or the electricity running somehow, so what are they going to put in the furnace? They need fuel of some kind, and clothes made the obvious sense. The clothes very patently aren't fueling the furnace. That's a gas-fired furnace. You can see the jets coming up. It's like a crematorium. I have base percentage in my mechanical or electrical repair. As far as (laughs) I was concerned, it was a thing that made electricity. So while Leo and Jacob emote loudly at each other, the man with the slit throat appears from nowhere, putting a knife to Jacob's throat. Jacob grapples with him, giving Leo an opportunity to flee. Now, we do notice that this fella, this guy that cut his throat, he's all right again now, but is he all right? Because he's got like a tube coming out of his throat, like they've fixed it up with some, uh, I don't know, more than just special effects. So that's how on stage you get a blood splurt effect. So the whole cutting his throat earlier was a stage effect. Oh, is that how you took that? Right, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, that's why the woman was shouting at him for messing around and stuff like that. He obviously did this from time to time. That, yeah, it was just prosthetics around his throat that he cuts through it with a knife. There's fake blood that spurts out. Ha, mm. ha, ha, good gag. I'm not sure what purpose it serves in the overall scheme here, but I guess it kept him happy. I mean, it gave the audience, us, the audience watching the film, a bit of blood to look at, so yay. What else are you going to do in the apocalypse apart from play around with fake blood? But anyway, Leah runs through the kitchen as she's running away and bumps into one of these hanging hams that's dangling from the ceiling and knocks it off and it bounces off the ground and there is this hollow plastic thunk. And she looks around and she realises the rest of the fresh produce, so like these cabbages and onions and so on that have been lying around, are just cardboard cutouts. When I said earlier about the director cheating, this is one of the bits. Because this is one of these things that you can sort of almost pretend works in a film because it's a two-dimensional thing and as the camera goes around, I mean, even if they were cardboard cutouts, it might look okay. But if these were really cardboard cutouts and you had people walking through the kitchen like they did earlier, it would be so fucking apparent. I mean, there there are so many little bits like this where the director basically just seems to think that the audience are idiots, that they won't be paying any attention. And I guess the film is superficial enough that paying attention is a waste of time anyway. But if you are paying attention to stuff like this, it just doesn't work. It doesn't. And if you were doing this in a role-playing game, your players would get justifiably angry with you. Sort of, what kind of idiot wouldn't notice those were cardboard cutouts? I mean... If I took my glasses off, then I could be fooled. 
<laughs> so basically, everyone wandering around is short-sighted and wandering around with their glasses. I, mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, that, that does explain so much about the film, Matt, because people who could actually see what was going on wouldn't be fooled. I was going to say, you wouldn't find me walking around without my glasses at all because I'd just bump into every fucking thing and everyone. But no, I mean, seriously, would you ever be shameless enough as a GM to do something like this in a game? Not like that, but I have done games where I've deliberately misrepresented things because they're illusionary. But that's on a different level than just saying, hey, it's a cardboard cutout. Yeah, yeah, or like with delusions. But it's almost like they were suffering delusions when they entered and those delusions sort of fall away as they go on. But they clearly weren't. And there's another bit. I mean, going back to that eye that's cut in the painting that we talked about earlier with Leo seeing this eye blinking in the painting. Now, later on, sorry, spoilers, I'm getting slightly ahead. We do see the other side of that painting. When we had the scene where she and Jacob are examining the front of it, Jacob runs his finger over it and there is no hole there. It is absolutely a solid painting so obviously Mm, mm. obviously leo has just imagined this but when they go around and they see the other side of the painting there is a classic little what is kind of swiveling bit of metal that covers it up that's got the painting on the other side so there is a hole in it so if you ran your finger over it you would see that similarly when they've got the fake door that opens up from the wall, the painting swings out and people go into this secret door. When they take the painting off the wall, there is absolutely no trace of it. I mean, is this magic? Well, Leo is suffering from delusions, isn't she? Well, should we address when we come to it? But she is definitely suffering from delusions during the film when she sees her daughter as well but when she goes around the other side and she's looking through the eye hole on the other side of the painting that's a delusion as well so if everything she's seeing is a delusion does anything in this film matter well singing its praises (laughs) and if it's not a delusion what kind of idiot does the director take us for let's push on with our synopsis and find out because i fear we're going to lose track otherwise Leo hides in a cupboard which conveniently has press clippings pasted to the door, describing the death of Matthias's daughter in a fire at this very hotel. You must have these handouts! <laughs> I'm going to hit you in the face with them. What do you mean you don't look in the... Oh, they haven't looked in the drawer. I know, they're stuck on the inside of the wardrobe door and you, it's, dark, it's dark in there. Never mind, you can still see them. <laughs> Luckily, Leo's pursuer is caught away in preparation for the next show. Before leaving, Leo examines a prop envelope that contains a picture of Matthias and his daughter. She looks a lot like Alice. Just saying, could be a coincidence. (laughs) Now there's a lucky coincidence right there. In the ballroom, Matthias briefs the actors again. While some of the audience may be people they know, the masks will help keep them anonymous. The important thing is to divide the audience so their superior numbers don't pose a threat. Engaging performances are key here. So Raquel angrily reminds Matthias that despite the skits that they've been doing, she's not actually his wife and he shouldn't treat her like that. And in retaliation, he gets very angry with her and threatens to kick her out and she backs down. In the midst of all this, Catherine storms in complaining that someone moved the button, which will become apparent later, and she nearly fell in. I mean, this isn't explained to what, but you have like, you know, two minutes to wait before you understand it. 
She also lost an earring too. Following Catherine, Leo hallucinates Alice everywhere. She overhears one of the sinister men in white telling Catherine that the tunnels are off limits to actors. Leo finds a button hidden in the painting of the sheep's head. When she presses it, a trapdoor opens, plunging her into a tunnel below. She immediately has to hide from one of the sinister men. So, yes, down in the tunnel, this is where Leo finds that peephole looking out into the corridor behind the other side of the picture. She then follows the sound of screaming and stumbles into this abattoir where the sinister men are carving up human bodies. Did either of you see this coming, that there was cannibalism involved? I mean, the way this is portrayed, I mean, this is the biggest shock ever, right? I mean, we didn't see this coming. There's cannibalism in disguise. They're eating people. I couldn't believe it. I did kind of guess by the time that they took the silver domes off the plates. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yes, anyway, Leo is obviously far more surprised by this than we are. And she runs out of the room where she bumps into Lars, who immediately knocks her out. When Leo wakes up, she is hanging by her feet in the abattoir. Lars is dressed in the uniform of the sinister men. Matthias sits down next to her and offers her a job as an actor. Leo refuses, but Matthias places Alice's blood-stained dress on a hook and taunts Leo for a bit and then leaves Lars to slaughter her like a pig. This teaches us a lesson, folks. If you've got an NPC you really want to do a job, just fucking do it. Don't get distracted, just do it. Jacob arrives. Instead of trying to free Leo, he continues the recruitment pitch. It's the only way for them to survive as a family. The family that slays together stays together. When Leo refuses, Jacob convinces Lars to let him slaughter her, but then punches Lars and cuts Leo down. It's funny how Lars, as her killer has like an antibacterial swab or something to uh, yes. to wash her throat. And he spends quite a long time doing that, giving uh, Jacob time to turn up to take him out. It's like, you're going to slit her throat and kill her. I don't think you need to worry about like viruses and bacteria. Yeah. Do I... you? <laughs> that was weird. As with so many things in this film, it was put on screen because it was either expedient or the director thought it looked cool, not because it made any fucking sense. Yeah. So, yeah, the two men get into a bit of a fight. And in the process, Lars stabs Jacob. In self-defence, as Lars turns on her, Leo pushes Lars onto a dangling meat hook, which is conveniently behind him, and somehow manages to ram it all the way through his body, despite the fact that it's just dangling from a chain. So her anger as a wronged mother and wife here is so great that she manages to overcome the laws of physics. It's rolling a zero-one on your fighting brawl check. That's what does Mm. it. Jacob, meanwhile, bleeds out on the ground and only has enough energy for a short monologue. Well, he he was doing a monologue. He deserved to die. (laughs) Once Jacob finishes dying, Leo tastes the blood on Alice's dress because, again, that's what you do. If there's any blood, make sure you taste it. I can totally see characters doing that in role-playing games, actually. (laughs) Discovering is fake. She grabs a mask and goes to join the party, one of those gold masks, to make her look like one of the audience members. Walking through the hotel, she passes actors, acting, as they do, and audience members dropping through trapdoors. She encounters the man who slit his own throat. As they struggle, she puts her mask on his face and he's killed by one of the sinister men in her place. So it's got me wondering about the the actual wisdom as a strategy of using these masks the way they do. Because 
it doesn't really seem to work out that well for them a lot of the times. That it seems, I don't know, like a a very messy way of doing things. But this scene wouldn't have worked if you didn't set that up. Oh, absolutely. But <laughs> you know, again, it's the director, I think... This is something that I think we can learn from a role-playing point of view, which is not to get too attached to our ideas. So I'm sure you've both had the same experience of you're writing a scenario, you come up with a scene or an idea or something you want to use in there, and you're finding ways of trying to shoehorn it, and you write around it, and you realise ultimately it doesn't work or that it goes against the other things that you've laid out. And the temptation is still there to try to massage it and, and try to fix it and try to shoehorn it in there somehow but once you've got a bit of experience as a GM and a writer you learn that you don't do that because it just kills suspension of disbelief it makes the whole thing well stupid who knows maybe one day the guy who made this film will learn the same lesson so which bit are you taking issue with scott the gold mask that she uses to put on the her killer just the whole use of the gold masks in the hotel i mean it's a really nice image it's a nicely designed mask Mm. but as an actual strategy for what they're trying to accomplish in the hotel it seems very iffy because for a start, the audience members, as we've seen early on, just go around, they take the fucking masks off anyway. So if that's the one thing you're relying on, then as a security protocol, it is deeply flawed. And then the fact that, you know, she does put the mask on someone else and they end up being killed instead. OK, I mean, that's an extreme scene. Hmm. But you are putting the entire reliance of your plan on the fact that people are going to go around this hotel the whole time wearing these rather uncomfortable looking masks and not take them off. Which, you know, is, like so many things this film, stupid. You're expecting players to comply with an NPC's command? What the hell? No, I'm expecting a filmmaker to think through the repercussions of the script that he's put together, which he clearly has not. (laughs) Arriving at the ballroom, Leo finds Matthias and some actors performing for a substantial audience. This is the second show of the evening. She tells the audience what is really going on, but Matthias pretends this is part of the play, because this is a lot like in the first show when Leo and Jacob turned up and... At the end of their dinner, they had an actor walk in and give a sort of hysterical performance. She's now putting on a hysterical performance, so it's very credible to the audience that this is just part of the show. Well, changing tack, Leo starts putting on her own performance, delivering a soliloquy to the audience and leading them away. She takes them into the tunnels, along with some of the actors. There they see the abattoir, which unites the audience and cast into an angry mob. And I think this is... The one thing about this film that I really liked, it kind of explores the idea that power is something that is granted, that where you have a large number of people and you have a small group who are trying to manipulate them or use them, if it relies upon deception, if it relies upon propaganda and manipulation, that it is a very fragile thing, that the person who controls the narrative controls the situation. And as soon as Leo starts taking the narrative away from Matthias, then despite the fact that it's his hotel and he has the cast members and so on, then he has lost control of the situation. I think it's something that we've seen over and over again in the collapse of authoritarian regimes. And I thought as a little idea there, or as the way it was presented, it was fairly nicely done. Mm. 
my God, he likes something about the film. Wow. I told you before we started that, I mean, I didn't hate everything about it. I don't even necessarily hate the film. I think it's a deeply boring and flawed film. I think it's not so much bad as just painfully mediocre and dumb. The cast members confront Matthias. They were happy with mass murder, but cannibalism, that's too much. One stabs Matthias, who gives a dying speech to Leo about family and how much Alice looks like his own daughter. Yeah, okay, we're happy inviting all these people in there, killing them, stealing their stuff and so on. But eating people when everyone is starving to death, that's crossing a line. Considering the number of times that populations have turned to cannibalism in times of mass starvation, I don't know. That was one bit I couldn't really buy, that this would be the thing that turns everyone against Matthias. Sure, it's disgusting, but on the other hand, if the alternative is starvation... People do eat each other. We've seen that over mm. and over again in history. It happens. I keep turning down those invitations to a Donna party. Left alone in the ballroom, Leo weeps over Alice's dress. Alice hears this and comes to her, but Leo believes that Alice is a hallucination, as you do, or as she does repeatedly. Alice convinces her she's real by singing. After Leo tells Alice that she doesn't have a daddy anymore, the two head home to starve to death, pausing only to look meaningfully at the hotel. And there's like a ray of sunshine, uh, like a god beam, <laughs> shining down on the Overlook Hotel. I mean, the, uh, the hotel. <laughs> That's the end of the film, except for the bit after the credits, which there wasn't. I was going to say, I didn't think there was a bit after the credits. <laughs> there wasn't a bit, no. <laughs> and they all starved happily ever after. I thought that was actually quite a nice ending. It was, hey, that kind of traditional, it's a whole happy ending, they've got back together. And there's nothing for them outside. Yeah. They're better off eating people. Just back to the grimness. From the grimness to the grimness. Just more grimness. Different shade of grim. Yeah, I thought that bit was all right. It was a very patchy film. The production design was pretty good, though most mm. of it seemed to be borrowed from far better films. I guess one of my problems with this was that if you got the basic premise and you plugged it into an AI, GPT-2 or GPT-3, and said, right, okay, complete this based on this opening premise. This is the script it would write. It is as mundane and obvious as could be. Once you start out with this premise, this is the script you would write if you had no imagination. So, Matt, you were the one that suggested this film that we watch it. Well, so what was it that you particularly liked? Or what was it that you thought was of interest? Just the style of it. Visually, it was a nice-looking film. It was wonderfully grim, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I think I was completely at the other end of the bell curve from Scott. I thoroughly liked it all the way through. It was one of those rare instances where Tiff had actually discovered this on Netflix first and then sat me in front of the TV and says, you've got to watch this, and there's me thinking, oh, shit, there's going to be another two hours of my life I won't get back, uh, which, which <laughs> normally happens. But no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Admittedly, I did think it was a bit predictable, thinking, yep, the cannibalism angle is going to come up here very soon. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. But on the whole, no, it had some, some nice images. It had a creepy atmosphere. An annoying kid that I was rooting for to end up on a plate with her head under one of silver platters, <laughs> which I would have thought would have been a better ending. If you had directed it, that would have happened for sure. Hell yeah. But on the whole, I found a lot more to enjoy out of it than, than what Scott did. But hey, apparently all the taste is in my mouth. <laughs> I can't like strongly defend it. I kind of reasonably enjoyed it. I thought there was some interesting bits in it. And I guess I kind of found myself sitting watching it, reflecting on 
other things I've watched recently. It also stirred ideas about King in Yellow and it being kind of like a palace and then wearing masks and so on. And I thought that's got to be in Matt's head. <laughs> that was for a while. Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. <laughs> and the removing of the masks and so on and the, the two teams, if you like. It reminded me a little bit of a 2019 film, Ready or Not. Um, yeah. Which sucked ass. <laughs> this was a lot better than that, I think. I much preferred Ready or Not just simply because it had a sense of humour. Yeah, I don't have a sense of humour. <laughs> I went to see it as part of the Odeon Scream Unseen. So I wasn't expecting a comedy film if it was a comedy film. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen the trailer for that, and I must admit I didn't strike any interest in me whatsoever. No. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. I'd say there's a lot more imagination that's gone into Ready or Not, and I mean, certainly the humour lightened it and made it a bit more engaging. With this, I don't know, I just I couldn't find anything to engage with, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, as I've mentioned in passing, the characters. You know how sometimes when you're playing a Call of Cthulhu one-shot or whatever, and and people have basically just created characters that are ciphers, that they are their pawns for going through the, the scenario, that you don't really know anything about them, they don't have any engagement with what's going on. With this, you have a character trait. All right, the mother was an actor before all this happened. The father, do we know anything at all about the father? I've no idea what he did. <laughs> He's a father, that's his trait. He's not even a very good one. And also, his personality just seems to keep changing throughout the film anyway. Yeah. He's whatever the scriptwriter seems to think they need in that scene, and he will just change for no reason. The kid, she has a trait of, I guess, wandering off. But, I mean, these are not even two-dimensional characters. There is nothing to care about with them. There is nothing to engage with them about. They are just there to bounce through the hotel like fleshy pinballs. I think in role-playing terms, it's almost like your players have turned up with characters for a different game. Mm. And you go, oh, yeah, we're not going to play that game. We're going to, I've got another scenario. Is it okay if we play this one? And they're like, oh, we don't want to generate new characters. And you're like, well, just use the ones you've got. You mean we're not playing Buddies and Burrows tonight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's an actor that was going to be playing in Macbeth. And there's a nuclear catastrophe has, has occurred. But somebody's putting on a show, so let's go along. But, I mean, it's like a horror film, and there's lots of shit horror films out there. I know because yeah. I watched a bunch during October. And it kind of sits in the middle of those, I would say, yeah, in terms of quality and, and everything. So for the standard horror film, I have to say I don't really expect too much. Yeah, I mean, I've said before that the worst thing that horror film can be is boring. I will often quite happily sit through a bad horror film that at least does silly fun stuff or takes me by surprise. But this was... Trying to get excited about this is like trying to get excited about beige. It is just stultifying. I'm looking at my carpet now, which is a wonderful shade of beige, and I think it really brings the room together. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'd say that there is entertaining stuff in this. I wasn't bored by it. It entertained me. I've seen far more boring films than this. Sound of my voice. No, Matt, no. That was good. <laughs> oh. Bad Matt. <laughs> I would have put this off after 
25 minutes, half an hour, if we hadn't been doing an episode on it, just simply because there was nothing in it I could make myself care about. Where does this lie between sound of my voice and repulsion for me, then I wonder? Hmm. <laughs> Finally, now you know how I felt sitting through those films. I will argue that, as well as the subjective taste, that there are quantitative differences here in that this is just a badly written film in terms of just the craft of writing this is lazy writing this is obviously like i say the director had certain images he wanted to put on the screen but the script is just lazy and that irritates me it irritates me that he has that kind of contempt for me as an audience member to think that i'll just put up with that I think there are inconsistencies that do jump out as you watch it and they are flaws, but they, I did find them making me consider other ways and it sort of sparked my imagination, I suppose. So I was sort of thinking, yeah, okay, well, that, that doesn't really make sense, but how would I have done it or how would I have done it differently? How would I have hmm. used the masks, the picture? Is it actually a false door there? It doesn't seem to be. You know, are these things delusions? So it's, it's something I think you can reflect on. And write your own better film. <laughs> yeah in some in some ways i mean like the red dresses falling down the, the stairwell i thought that was pretty cool i quite like that you know we see images in lots of films that don't necessarily have to make sense oh sure but i guess that was one of the things that jarred about that which is that it was tonally inconsistent that you had these moments where it was like the director suddenly thought, oh, hang on, I'm making an art house film. Let's put some arty shit in here. And then just wandered off and did something else afterwards. It did feel like it was just cobbled together out of bits that he'd seen in other better films. Mm. I keep wanting to draw the analogy to Midsummer there. Just watch The Wicker Man. Hmm. <laughs> except again with midsummer as i did when we we went through i can sit down and explain to you why everything that's in the script is there why everything that's on screen is there doesn't make it more interesting though scott it doesn't necessarily make it subjectively more interesting but in terms of the craft of writing a script you can sit down and just see that it's not just someone throwing random shit at a wall and hoping some of it sticks which this is but I think this is the film, I'm guessing, kind of made for like a popcorn audience, really. Yeah, it, oh, it is a, an aggressively middle-brow film. I think to me, I, I don't really sit down and critique a film for its craft, I mean, for how well it's written or how well it's constructed. I judge it more on, did I enjoy watching it? Mm. And I certainly enjoyed watching this a lot more than something like Midsummer because that was just, to me, it was just a, a knockoff version of The Wicker Man. But yes, I can appreciate that it is a much more professionally constructed film and coherent film but it's again just down to sub subjective personal taste i much preferred this because it's okay it was a combination of the look of it the feelings that it evoked and generally i didn't have that gut visceral reaction of this is a knockoff version of something else it just provoked something else different in me and something that i far more enjoyed yeah i wouldn't say it. it didn't really make me think this is a knockoff version of something else i mean as with pretty much anything you can look at it and think of inspirations or whatever but with this, yeah, I kind of thought oh, it was a bit like the Overlook Hotel, but it wasn't like playing on that overly. And, you know, you could pick out numerous other things that you could sort of compare it to, but it kind of felt like it was largely its own thing. I think the big comparison you can make is to Delicatessen, which was the, the first Jeanne and Caro film, the guys who later went on to make City of Lost Children, Amelie. Hmm. It's a fairly similar premise in that it's post-apocalyptic and about cannibalism. But... 
there's a an imagination, a sense of visual flair, um, and an ability to tell a story that's there in Delicatessen that is just painfully lacking here. I've seen clips of Delicatessen and I've heard of it, but I've not seen the thing all the way through. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago, but back in the 80s, I think. All this said, there's a lot you can learn as a GM from this about how you present information to players. And it's all very well having delusions and so on, but if you're just plain lying to players, you're going to lose their trust. And I think this film is a good example of that. There's also probably a good lesson to learn with those masks, even though we said that, yeah, it's a pretty flawed plan. I think NPCs or bad guys that have flawed plans are much more interesting than ones that have solid ones that can't be broken Mm. because it gives the PCs the chance to break them and have that sense of accomplishment. Yeah, this is the kind of level of challenge, I think, in this film. It is quite comparable to a lot of scenarios and I think Mm. it is good to have, like you say, Matt, I really like the mask, actually. I think the use of the mask was cool. Yeah, it's flawed. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's kind of cool. I think that'd be good in a game, yeah. And definitely using the mask to put on somebody else to get them killed. Well, that was great. That was a nice little scene. It just seemed to be an awful long walk to get there. There are other things that don't necessarily make sense as well. I get the impression from the huge piles of clothes that were lying around that room that this wasn't the first night they'd done this. They, oh, they've been sure. doing this for a while. So has no one in town realised that the people who go to the play don't come back? I was thinking about that, actually, wondering uh, kind of the logistics of it. They don't just go from one street and then the next night they go to the next street and then they go to the next street over. That They must have a plan as to which parts of the city they hit up for audience members in any given period so that word doesn't spread. It's also a post-apocalyptic, irradiated nightmare of a landscape. I doubt there's going to be going down to the shop and people gossip about, oh, did you go see that play at the hotel? That then There's not going to be that kind of word getting around as easily. Marketing must be a nightmare nightmare because you're not getting any customer reviews <laughs> trip advisor nothing not even a mention you know you look it up nobody's mentioning it on facebook or twitter or anything you know i mean no wonder this child catcher's got to go out on the street like selling his wares taking anything from people how much does it cost oh what can you pay and one question that's been hanging over my head with this, which I've yet to come up with a satisfactory answer for, and it may just come down to storytelling skill, but it's why when Lovecraft in some of his stories, like, say, Pickman's model, telegraphs an ending or telegraphs a twist, that he does it in such a way that it actually builds up dread, that you mm. know what's coming. Or, or in The Outsider, yeah, I know what's coming, but, yeah, it's going to be nasty. I know what's going Oh, yeah, yeah, he's hinting more and more at it. Yeah, I know what's going to happen, but it's going to be nasty. And it does build up tension. Here, I don't know, it felt like, all right, this is clearly about cannibalism. They're hinting at cannibalism. Okay. And then the big reveal two-thirds of the way through, oh, yeah, yeah, there's an abattoir. It's cannibalism, and it's... Okay, right. I don't know. I didn't feel that same kind of tension release. It just felt like they didn't expect us to see that coming, which which just seems bizarre. I think part of that scene, it didn't have as great of an impact as it could have done because it was very tame in the level of gore that it showed. Yeah. You had the same hand going into a like a meat slicer, which you saw in two scenes. But otherwise, apart from a naked body being carried through, there really wasn't anything to distinguish it much from anything like a butcher shot. Yeah. Week before last, I watched Bone Tomahawk 
for the first time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was somewhat taken aback by a particular scene yeah. Yeah. that uh, people had described as, oh, it's ridiculously gory, it's, oh, it's so violent, oh, it's genital mutilation. And I found it fairly tame. But I was thinking that okay. something along that kind of level of maybe tearing up bodies and yeah. really showing this is how you prepare a body to get rid of the shit you don't need and then take the good bits that are left over, something like that would have maybe had a hell of a lot more impact. Yeah, it wasn't a gore fest, was it? I mean, it was. It's no. quite low key on the visceral horror. I would say this yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also going back to that abattoir, another bit that just jarred with me at the time. Leo is drawn to the abattoir by the sounds of screaming. That there are clearly people having bad things done to them. But you go into the abattoir, and apart from the guys in the PPE, every fucker in there is dead. So where's that screaming coming? Have they just piped it in like Muzak? Well, you've got to have something to whistle while you work. <laughs> it's the creepy hotel soundtrack. <laughs> the blood gets off of the fourth floor. There's that bit in the back where I mentioned they carried the body through to, so it did seem that there mm. was a corridor that went beyond that. Maybe. But yeah, again, it's all off screen. I would have liked to have seen the masses huddled together, terrified, waiting for them to be next up on the chopping block. But no. Ugh, missed opportunity. I think that's the subtitle of the film. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. are listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash goodfriendsofjackson Elias. Thank you for listening. So, it is that time. Once again, when we would like to say thank you to everyone out there, thank you to our lovely audience who we are absolutely not going to eat. You say that. I do, and I largely mean it. I would like to say thank you to everyone who is listening, everyone who has ever backed us on the podcast, on Patreon, and we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, and a big thanks going out to Apskateninki. I think this is a good point to interject the usual thing of if we are completely bollocksing up your name, please do let us know and we will fix it. Many thanks go out to Zach Tetchman. And thank you very much to Matthew C. McHorris. And thank you to Brandon Brooker. And thank you very much to Nathaniel Burgess. And thank you to Ronald Lewis. And finally, thanks to Anthony O'Darley. Okay, well, I guess that wraps it up. It's uh, Cadaver. Possibly with a K, possibly with a C. Just not with a script. Possibly not bother at all. (laughs) I liked it. Thanks to Matt for recommending that film. We'll ask him again in 10 years' time for another one. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) No, I quite enjoyed it, Matt. It was fine. Uh, Things to learn. That's good. Things to learn. Yeah. We'll see you next time. No more to say. Thank you to the Norwegians for the film. Thank you to you for listening. And until next time, it's a goodbye from me. It's a cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com This is how the nuclear war started. This is how it started. Retaliation for that fucking film.